This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at IKEA-USA.com slash circular. Visit IKEA-USA.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. But yeah, when I mean, people often ask me, and I talk about this in my book as well, whether the, that scale of the universe is scary, you know, mm-hmm. and it can make a lot of people feel quite anxious in the way that it sort of not belittles human endeavors, but, you know, it can make them feel very small. And like, I, f- I don't feel like that when I think about the scale. I understand why people do. But instead, I say to people, well, instead of thinking like that, think about how it means there's like infinite possibilities. There's like infinite stuff you could do or you could go or you could be. Hmm. And that I think is really exciting. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, and a belated Happy New Year to you all. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus. This week, I chat to Dr Becky, who by day is an astrophysicist unravelling the mysteries of supermassive black holes, and by night entertains science buffs like you and I on her YouTube channel. She explains how to find a black hole, and why they're actually incredibly bright, what an astrophysicist does by day, and why flooding YouTube with scientists is the best way to counteract disinformation and bogus theories. My name is Dr. Becky Smethurst, and I am an astrophysicist at the University of Oxford. And what is it that you're, you know, what's your specialism? So my research focuses on supermassive black holes. These black holes that we think are anywhere from a million times the mass of the sun up to like a billion times the mass of the sun. And I like to look at how they can affect the galaxies that they live in the very center of? Like, does the energy that goes into feeding the black hole and then can get output from sort of the surrounding area as well somehow affect the galaxy it lives in, either by disrupting the shape of it or stopping stars from forming within it as well? 
So really cool area of science that I absolutely love. <laughs> that's, um, that's it's pretty big stuff, Reese. thinking about black holes. So how, how is it like you actually are able to go, okay, how do you find a black hole to start with? And then how do you go like, how is this affecting everything? Yeah, so finding the kind of black holes that I look at, the supermassive variety, um, it took over the past sort of 50 years for us to get to the point where we have a theory that is accepted that there is a supermassive black hole in the center of every galaxy. So the best place to look for one is in the center of a galaxy. Uh, And the giveaway uh, for finding them in the centers of galaxies is actually that they're incredibly bright which is a very strange thing to say about a black hole. (laughs) However, what we think happens is that the material that's falling into the black hole, which ends up forming like a disc as it spirals around it. So the same way that, you know, you making a pizza, you would throw a ball of pizza dough above your head and you'd start it spinning and it would flatten out into a nice pizza-shaped disc. Uh, The same thing we think happens to material as it falls into the black hole. It comes in as a blob, but because it starts spiraling and spinning around the black hole, it flattens out. And then in that disc, as it's spiraling so fast around this huge object, all that material starts to heat up and it starts to glow. And yes, the infrared, but also things like x-rays as well, and also optical light that we can see. And so we've been calling these objects quasars, for a long time. And it only took sort of the past sort of 30, 40 years for us to realize that these quasars are actually powered by supermassive black holes. And are those black holes specifically themselves, why are they, if, if, you know, if we can see all of this stuff around it, why can't we see a black hole? Yeah, we can't see a black hole because when matter has fallen into it, it has to be traveling faster than the speed of light to escape the gravitational pull again. And one of the most basic laws of physics is that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And so nothing can escape from a black hole, whether it be matter or whether it be light. Therefore, we can't see anything in it because not even light can escape. And so you end up with a region of space which has so much stuff in it. It's so densely compacted matter. It's just that we're not able to see that it's there. You end up sort of referring to it as like a a shadow Hmm. on the rest of the stuff we can see. So that sort of makes me uh, wonder why. So this is probably going back to a sort of basic physics level. But why is it that, um, you know, all of this, this matter that's compacted, what is the effect that that's having with light? And what's making it nothing, you know, why is no light able to sort of uh, escape it? Yeah, so if we think about the Earth as a start off, you know, you can throw a ball above your head or you can try and jump off the surface of the earth, but you're not going to make it off the surface of the earth (laughs) because we physically don't have enough energy to power ourselves off the surface. Gravity is always going to win that fight and pull us back down. We can, however, launch rockets off the surface of the earth. uh, And that is because we've given them enough energy to counteract gravity pulling down on us. And so you can work out the speed that you need to reach in order to escape the Earth's gravity. And that speed for the Earth is, I think, 11 kilometers per second, Mm -hmm. which is quite large, (laughs) even for the Earth. (laughs) And so um, if you then think of a much heavier object where you've probably put a million times the mass of the sun 
inside, say, Earth's orbit. So inside a very small region of the solar system. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of mass in one space. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, you've not just got Earth you have to escape from. You have all of this stuff pulling you back down and all the gravity constantly pulling you back down. And so you get to the point where you work out what we call this escape velocity that we have on Earth, you know, that we can fire rockets up to escape Earth's gravity. The escape velocity for a black hole is bigger than 300 million meters per second. Right. And that is the speed that light travels at. And nothing can travel faster than that speed. And therefore, you can never get back out of a black hole again. (laughs) And that's why they, they appear black. Yeah, exactly. They appear black because light is not given off by the black hole. It's not reflected by the black hole because it can't get back to us. It's essentially absorbed by the black hole. Sounds like quite an unpleasant place to be. Yeah, a little bit. Um, One of my favorite, favorite facts about black holes is that if you were to fall into a black hole, say feet first, right? Mm. And you were just sort of traveling towards it feet first, the gradient of how strong gravity would be would mean that the gravity was so much stronger at your feet than at your head that you get stretched out like spaghetti. (laughs) And it's called spaghettification, and it's possibly my favorite word ever in the history of science, is (laughs) spaghettification, the fact that that is a real thing. (laughs) So, like, hypothetically in that sort of situation, and this is probably more of a biology thing, but would, you know, with relativity and, and everything like that, would you feel like you're stretched out or would your, your organs be stretched out at the same time? I don't know. I don't think you'd have enough time to be able to register the feeling. <laughs> I think before you'd blink, you'd just be one long string of atoms running mm. from the black hole upwards. Um, so, yeah, I don't think you'd have much awareness of what was actually going on if you were that close to a black hole. So, you know, as you say, like the the, the black hole is this huge, densely packed uh, collection of matter. Do we know what that matter actually is? No. And that's the thing. You know, people always ask, well, what does the inside of a black hole looks like? Um, we don't know still, to be honest. So what can happen is that instead of it, let me start this again. So what we do know what matter is like is in what we call a neutron star. So a neutron star is kind of like the precursor to a black hole, essentially. So black holes can form when stars go supernova and run out of fuel and die and they collapse down in on themselves. If they've got enough mass, they become a black hole. If not, they form what's called a neutron star, which is essentially neutrons, i.e., you know, little subatomic particles. You know, you've got your protons, neutrons, and electrons that make atoms. Essentially, what a neutron star is, is just neutrons as tightly packed as they can go. Like you've squished all of the space out of an atom and you've just been left with neutrons. And then you've arrayed them in like a perfect crystal so that they like perfectly tessellate everywhere. (laughs) That is like the densest form of matter that we understand and that we can like explain with our theories, uh, you know, with a mathematical equation. We have no idea what happens when two of these neutron stars, say, merge and make a black hole. What happens to those beautifully densely packed neutrons? We don't know. We essentially, all we know is that it becomes a black hole and the matter within it is the densest way that matter can be. We just don't know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) 
How would you, I, I mean, obviously this is probably you know, already being questioned in, in astrophysics and people who study black holes, but what, how would we go about trying to work out what's in there? And also what sort of is the, you know, kind of in a way, what's the benefit of knowing? That's the thing. I don't think we have any way of knowing apart from sort of theorizing. It's not something we could ever observe. So obviously the way science works is that you come, you can come up with a theory and you come up with ways of testing that theory. So you might come up with a question that would falsify or verify the theory. Um, and to do that, you would then go observe something. The problem is we've just not really any way of observing a black hole because we can't see anything. Um, the only way that we might have a little bit of hope is um, from gravitational waves. So this is this new way that we're now observing the universe. So you can imagine if two black holes were to merge or even two neutron stars that I was just talking about were to merge, that's a really catastrophic event, right? Mm -hmm. And um, what we think happens is that the gravity in those events is so strong as they come together that they essentially send ripples out into space that stretch and squash space a little bit because of the sort of echo of this really strong event of gravity that happened. And we can detect those on Earth essentially as like the squishing and squashing of space from a very precisely measured distance. And so from that, we've been able to work out what happens in the merger of these systems. And so that's the only way we really have of observing them. But again, you're observing what sort of gets propagated outwards rather than what's in the center or in the middle of the black hole. So it's a very difficult question to answer. And it might be one that we might have to just sort of hold our hands up and say, we're never going to know this and that's okay. <laughs> But we'll keep on looking for, for for more accurate ways to, to you know, these gravitational ways. We'll keep on studying them and seeing what they can tell us. Yeah, definitely. So we have about uh, three or four detectors on Earth now looking for these. But the future plan is also to build a detector in space, which will be much more sensitive as well. It's a bit difficult to detect these squishing and squashing waves in space that pass through the earth because you know a, a lorry drives over overhead and all of a sudden your ground is shaking you know there's earthquakes so there's lots of stuff on earth that you have to mitigate for that make it very difficult but in space we'll be away from all that so people are very excited about that experiment it's going to be called the the lisa experiment um, to detect gravitational waves as thinking about like experiments like um, Lisa and then also going back to like the, the the black holes that we were thinking about so obviously we've had uh, I remember when the gravitational waves were discovered it was, was a couple of years ago now uh, mm -hmm. and it was it, you know it's big fanfare and it was big this is a really exciting discovery and then also uh, the picture of the black hole when that came yeah. out earlier this year they were really cool but I guess you know in the world of science uh, and, and when you're studying it these are just great things but for people who don't know so much about them a lot of the time they'll be asking you know why why is this important what is this why is this picture or why is this what is this mm -hmm. telling us is that something that you um wanted to sort of uh, help communicate with your youtube channel yes definitely um i set up my youtube channel essentially to be your like friendly neighborhood astrophysicist essentially that you could ask any question to including like why we bother really with observing the universe and space exploration and everything um i mean to me you know curiosity's sake is probably the best argument that makes sense most to me. Like humans will always be curious. It's why Columbus got in his ship and traveled over to, you know, see if there was any land past the West of Europe, that kind of thing. Um, but it's also the unforeseen benefits of, you know, this kind of 
investigation of the universe. So, for example, you mentioned the image of the black hole they managed to take that was released earlier this year. Incredible, incredible achievement to be able to image that shadow of a black hole on that material glowing that's spiraling around it. And there was a lot of people who said, well, why bother? Like, why have we even, why do we even care to take an image of a black hole, especially because it's taken you know, so many millions or billions of pounds. And also it's taken years worth of computing power to do this as well. But to take that image, they had to pretty much almost invent a whole new way of analyzing the imaging data they had. And then also this new algorithm to amalgamate all those images as well. Mm -hmm. And the unforeseen benefits of almost having to invent that algorithm, like you, we have no idea now where they're going to go. But if you look back to, you know, previous experiments in astronomy that have pushed forward and said, okay, we need to see this. So we need this new uh, instrument or we need this new way of analyzing the data. And then a couple of years down the line, that same data technique is being applied in medical imaging for example, or the detectors that have been invented to see deeper and further in the universe are being implied in that. Or one of my favorite uh, examples is um, the algorithm that was used or invented to figure out where astronomers were on the sky. I, you know, you've taken a random images of stars and you've sort of drawn a load of triangles between them and the algorithm figures out from all those triangles where you are on the sky is now used to identify whale sharks in the wild. You know, those blue sharks with the white dots on them. Mm -hmm. And it's like the same algorithm, but, you know, whole new application. And it's that kind of thing, that sort of unforeseen benefits that you have no idea are going to come out of being like, hey, can we take an image of a black hole? <laughs> like, it's it would be really cool to do, but, you know, you have no idea what's going to come off the back of it. And I love that. I think it's mm. so exciting. I guess it's kind of like, for you, you know, your work is in black holes, so seeing that photo you know, probably have some direct uh, applications in what you do, but then seeing it also, what we're doing there can affect other things. That, you know, that must be quite inspiring both for you and for other people working like scientists across the world. Yeah, massively so. Like, um, I, one of the examples I love in terms of an inspiring of scientists is um, there is a web platform called the Zooniverse. Mm -hmm. which started when uh, the team that I now work in, who researched the shapes of galaxies, um, they had a million images of galaxies and there wasn't enough of them to physically go through them all and say, this one is a beautiful spiral shape, this one is more of a blob shape. And so they put them online for people to classify because it's not really a difficult task. Like a, a five-year-old could tell you whether it was a spiral or a blob. Um, and so people loved it. You know, Radio 4 listeners in particular absolutely <laughs> loved it. I think they shut down the server 24 hours after it launched. Um, and, you know, we never knew at the, I mean, my team, I wasn't there at the time. This was uh, 10 or 11 years ago now. They never knew at the time what it would lead to this one website that they put up. It's now this whole platform of a hundred other science projects that are taking place that are all under the header of the Zooniverse, like universe, but Zooniverse. Mm -hmm. And one of the projects they're now running is called the Planetary Response Network. And instead of using the satellites in space to look out at galaxies, they've turned them back on Earth. And anytime there's a natural disaster, they're taking satellite imagery data and showing it to people online 
next to the sort of before the natural disaster image and the after the natural disaster image and saying, you know, label where there are roadblocks, label where a helicopter has space to land, show us where the flood areas are. So that's literally just been launched again after Hurricane Dorian hit the Bahamas um, a couple of weeks ago. And so they're asking people to label all of the satellite imagery data. And that was a platform, again, that was built to help astronomers classify the shapes of galaxies <laughs> and is now being used by humanitarian and aid workers to help people after a natural disaster, which I, I get it. It's just one of those things where you realize by asking one question, you've all of a sudden inspired someone else to go, oh, hey, you never thought of this, but we could do this with it, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is incredible. Is that something that you have to do? Like when, you, when you're coming up with, like, you know, what you, your research, do you then have to sort of think, how, how can this be uh, applied in a different way? Or is that something that you just hope someone else will pick up? Yeah, I think it's something that you you can't think of, right? You can't start thinking of like, oh, the unforeseen benefits, because it's so difficult to think of those. It's, I think astronomy definitely comes under the header of what we call blue sky research. This idea that you're not driven by the need for something or, you know, for example, like a, a cure for a disease or the answer to a question or whatever. It's, it's asking questions for questions sake almost. Mm-hmm. It's the freedom to say, well, I want to ask this question, but who knows where it might lead me. And then it's for other people then to come in and say, have you thought about doing it with this? Or have you thought about how this can affect this other area? You know, not everyone can have you know, infinite expertise as much as some of us might wish we did. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a team effort. It's collaborative, right, amongst all scientists, which is what I love about working in science, I think, the most. Hmm. Does that mean that sort of uh, astronomy is kind of like a, a philosophical science in a way? Yeah, massively. I mean, that's how it was originally, you know, not pitched, that's the wrong word, but that's how astronomy originally came to be, right? The the people who were answering these questions were the philosophers, you know, the Greek, Arabian, Persian kind of philosophers were answering the big questions about the universe. Um, And that's what always makes me laugh about astronomy is that, you know, people find out you're an astrophysicist and sure, they want to know about black holes, but also they want to know whether you think aliens exist and where life came from. And you just think that's well beyond me. You know, I just sit at my desk crunching data about black holes. How do I have the clout to answer this age old question about whether we think we're alone in the universe? But it's also amazing to think that you kind of do have a little bit of that background knowledge that gives you the ability to philosophize over mm. some of the big questions. I guess in, in that sort of situation, your space is, you know, what was it? Douglas Adams said space is big, like really, really big. Um, really, really big. <laughs> <laughs> and then so when you're sort of studying something so mind-numbingly big, um, mm. it, you, you must have like a different frame of mind of how you sort of contextualize and, and put things uh, in a way so that we can understand them here and just as regular human beings on, on Earth. A little bit, yeah. I It is a bit weird because the scale that you deal with is ridiculous. And sometimes, it, you know, when you're at your desk or on the train, on your commute, whatever you're doing, and you're, you know, going through some numbers, you don't really think about the scale of it. You just think about relative to another thing you've, you know, you've thought about. So, you know, this black hole is 10 billion times the mass of the sun. This one's 1 million times the mass of the sun. You're not really picturing what that actually looks like. You're just thinking like, oh, that one's 10 times smaller, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
but sometimes you you do have to contextualize it a little bit um you know putting things into scales that we can you know comprehend um saying you know this event horizon of a black hole the event horizon being the point at which if you cross it there's no returning you know it is the size of the solar system like that's how big this thing is you know like you sometimes do have to think that and even when you're thinking about stars as well i know that there's a, a star in the sky called betelgeuse which people might or betelgeuse how people want to pronounce it uh it's in orion the constellation so people might be quite familiar with it it's sort of the the left shoulder of orion as you look at it and it's quite a very red star like just sort of left of orion's belt and it's what we call a red giant star and it's huge right it's absolutely huge and to really comprehend the scale I always say, okay, well, if the sun was the size of a tennis ball, which is already quite difficult to picture because the sun is big. (laughs) Um, We know that it's very, very big. But Mm. if the sun was the size of a tennis ball, then Betelgeuse would be the size of the London eye. Blimey. Yeah. And it's Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then when you think about like, and then, you know, the black holes are the size of the solar system. Like sometimes it's very, very difficult to wrap your head around it. And so... I like to think about it in sort of like ratios, Mm -hmm. you know, to everything else. So one of my unit in astrophysics that people always laugh at is the parsec, right? It's that famous line in Star Wars that's like, we can make the Kessel run in 12 parsecs or whatever. Um, And it's a unit of distance. So Star Wars fans have uh, tried very, very hard (laughs) to come up with a reason that uh, he might have said that in that uh, context. But I always think about, you know, the distance to the nearest stars is in parsecs, which is something like three times 10 to the 19 meters away, which is scientific notation for meaning a three with 19 zeros after it, meters, (laughs) right? So it's very far. Yeah. If I then start thinking, okay, well, if those are the nearest stars, how far away is the center of the Milky Way? You start getting to ridiculous numbers, not that three with 19 zeros after it wasn't already a ridiculous (laughs) number, but you get to ridiculous numbers, right? So instead we use like something like a parsec. Uh, and so we say, okay, distance to nearest stars is parsec. Distance to center of Milky Way, kiloparsec. So thousands of parsecs. Distance to nearest galaxy, megaparsecs. Hmm. You know, you're going up in like a thousand every time, a megaparsec being a million parsecs. And then, you know, uh, sort of distance to nearest like cluster and, and the sort of edges of the universe, you're getting towards the gigaparsecs, like a billion parsecs. So you have you have those scales in your head. You're just, you're jumping by thousands every time rather than by like one every time. Hmm. So that, that's how you kind of can try and deal with it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- already my mind is, is feels like it's grown the size of a parsec at least. Um, just, <laughs> just thinking that. Um, but then also I'm, I'm now thinking also at the you know what was it the however old the 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 universe is it started as a point in the big bang and now it's gigaparsecs uh in size that's that is must be quite there's a lot there to cover as a as as an astronomer um yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty sobering thought really when Mm. you think about how large it is um and like you said there's just so much up there you know when you think about we always like to not that there's rivalry between scientists, but we always like to joke with other scientists that, you know, they're focused on just the stuff on Earth. You know, mm. <laughs> they've only got the stuff on Earth to bother about. We've got like gigaparsecs worth of universe, <laughs> you know, that we have to study. So we always joke there's a lot more for us to do. Mm. Um, 
But yeah, when, I mean, people often ask me, and I talk about this in my book as well, whether that scale of the universe is scary, you know, Mm -hmm. and it can make a lot of people feel quite anxious in the way that it sort of not belittles human endeavors, but, you know, it can make them feel very small and like, I, f- I don't feel like that when I think about the scale. I understand why people do. But instead I say to people, well, instead of thinking like that, think about how it means there's like infinite possibilities. There's like infinite stuff you could do or you could go or you could be. Mm. And that I think is really exciting thought that there's just so much out there, you know, that you could do and you could be a part of. And I, and I think that's, a better way of looking at it than feeling really small. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, as as an astronomer, like there's lots of different uh, parts of you know different types of astronomy and all that. Um, as you say, there's an infinite amount of things to do. How do you decide what it is that you're going to study, and what would you you know what does the uh, the day what does an astronomer's day look like essentially? Yeah, um, good question. Uh, I, I guess it's just one of those things that you know what you find the most interesting. Um, I ended up with sort of black holes and galaxies for a while. I thought I wanted to do like exoplanets, you know, planets around other stars in our solar system, because that sounded really cool and exciting as well. And it is often really difficult to narrow it down because there just is so much stuff that's exciting, so much stuff that we don't know about or enough about. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just what you want to spend your days doing, really. So I am an observer rather than um, a theorist or rather than someone who simulates something on their computer. So a theorist, for example, would be someone who, you know, very typically coming up with ideas, seeing if they can work out the maths to describe that theory for example, you know, the traditional sort of like chalk and a blackboard kind of a thing. (laughs) You then got someone who is a simulationist. Don't think that's the word, but let's go with it. Uh, And there's someone who's saying, okay, can I simulate either the whole universe or this specific galaxy or this specific object in the universe? Can I simulate it by putting in all the known laws of physics into a computer and they code that up themselves and then like run that program and, and see what they get? Mm-hmm. You know, that that's very much a really cool thing to do, but I don't want to do that much with computers. So I was like, let's be an observer. So I'm someone that kind of works in a little bit of a cycle, six months to a year, for example, where you would say, okay, I have this question that I want answered about the universe that I'm curious about. And you say, okay, how am I going to answer that question? You say, well, I need this data to do it. So what you do is you write what's called a telescope proposal. And you say, this is what I want to do with this telescope. And I need five nights in, say, March to do it. Can I have them? And then a a committee will meet and go through them all and decide, like, which one's worthy of the time on the telescopes. And if you're lucky, you'll get time. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get to go to some far-flung tropical place somewhere like Hawaii or La Palma or Chile, (laughs) where the telescopes are, because they have to be up high on mountains and away from light pollution, you know, et cetera. So we're very lucky in that regard. And then you go to the telescope, take your data, come back, and then you you spend time, you know, in your office at a desk analyzing what you found, whether it was you've taken an image or whether you've taken what we call a spectra, which is where you split the light from an object through a prism mm-hmm. and you get out like it's it's rainbow, like it's sort of quantum fingerprint of what's going on in terms of the light. Um, if you're picturing, you know, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, 
you're yeah. on the right track. Um, and so you analyze uh, that data and, and figure out whether it's going to be able to answer your question, which hopefully it will. And then once you think you have an answer, you then write up a scientific paper to describe that. You know, you'll write like an article uh, explaining what you did, what you found, and you'll publish it to the world essentially after another scientist has read it and said, yes, this is, you know, okay science, this makes sense, what we call peer review. And then it, yeah, it gets published and sometimes it makes it into the media as well. If, if uh, you know, the media think it's a, a really fun thing to report on, like the black hole image, for example, or mm -hmm. if we find another exoplanet that's very similar to Earth or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it works in a cycle in that sense because, you know, usually you write up that paper, you'll, you'll be like, well, this data didn't tell me this. And so now I have a new question. <laughs> we better go write another telescope proposal. And so I like doing that with my day because, mm. you know, you know, your day is varied. You're either at a telescope or you're using a computer to analyze your data and you are writing some code or you're writing a paper or you're making a graph or you know, you're flying on a plane somewhere, <laughs> whatever it might be. And it gives you a bit of variation. And then at the end of the day, it's, well, what do you want to be spending your time asking about? Do you want to be spending your time asking about stars or galaxies or black holes? Like what makes you want to get out of bed in the morning a little bit, you know? Yeah. And for me, that's black holes. That sort of brings me along in one way is the fact that that sounds like a very busy day uh, you know for anyone um and yet still we mentioned it earlier you've got a youtube channel that's yes. a very popular youtube channel um how come why have you decided you know as you say you're, you're a black hole specialist you, you, you're looking at the stars all the time why have you decided to go you know what i'm just going to make a youtube channel as well first of all because it's fun and it's <laughs> fun to chat to people online about space because space is cool <laughs> um but also i don't know if you remember there was an article um a couple of months back or maybe even a year ago now that was talking about um the rise of specifically flat earthers these people that believe the earth is flat mm -hmm. um and other conspiracy theories because of youtube essentially um because of the way the youtube algorithm works you know you watch one conspiracy video and all of a sudden you're led down the rabbit hole of conspiracy videos i'm sure we've all done it falling down a youtube rabbit hole at some point mm -hmm. um and you know so much so that there's now like conventions for people who believe the earth is flat and the thing is if you watch some of these videos they're clearly intelligent people in the sense that they have been able to um, come up with this theory, come up with ways to test the theory. Mm. The step is they don't then change their worldview when the evidence shows them that that isn't the case, for example. Right. Um, and that's what science is, really. It's not being emotionally attached to a theory. It's it's being able to to change your mind and to revise something and say, oh, we got this wrong. That's you have to be objective and logical about it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what gets me is that, you know, and I think a lot of these people who are intelligent people fall down this rabbit hole are convinced by these people who are, you know, speaking to them like their teachers did at school, for example, yeah. um, but also as if it's more of a conversation and therefore they they believe it because also they're saying, well, you know, when you see this, clearly this is the case. And, and people really resonate with that. And I remember in the article that talked about this, which I think was on the BBC, actually, they interviewed someone who'd done the study and she said, what we have to do is basically flood YouTube with actual scientists um, <laughs> talking about 
you know, more le- legitimate theories, for example, mm-hmm. or, you know, why this isn't the case, for example. Now, I haven't made a why the earth is round video <laughs> yet or why the earth <laughs> is not flat because I can just be like, I don't know, take a flight from London to Australia and come back yeah. via LA. Um, but, you know, it's important, I think, to have scientists on YouTube, um, oh, not even just scientists, but all professionals, experts, whatever you want to call them, talking to people openly, saying, yes, there are things that we don't know, and that's okay, Mm -hmm. but this is the way we work it out, and this is what evidence-based research looks like. To combat a little bit of this sort of, you know, like, the public are sick of experts kind of viewpoint as well, because there's a reason that, you know, people come out with what they do it's based on evidence it's not opinion mm-hmm. you know and i think it's important and one of the reasons is because i don't think that that's how science is currently taught in schools i think science in schools is very much this is it this is the fact and it comes across like this has always been known in this way right um and in fact i think there was only one time in science where that didn't we didn't do it that way. We, I think we was learning about the structure of an atom. So I remember this being on the GCSE syllabus. So I'm sure there's some listeners that also will remember this, where you went from sort of like the plum pudding model, you know, all the way through to the, the model that we do have now. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like this, I mean, that was one bit about science that I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is the bit that, that really hooked me into science. And I realized it was because it was like evidence-based research. It was almost like a like a crime novel in a way, you know, like sifting through the evidence to find out who done it. That is essentially what science is. It's not just equations and facts that have always been known in that way, you know? Um, And so I think by doing more stuff on YouTube, people become more engaged either later in life or earlier in life, whenever it is, and realize that, you know, this is how science happens and make it a bit more transparent for people because it, it can seem a little bit, you know, opaque in a way and very sort of on a pedestal sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, it's not on a pedestal. We're just normal people <laughs> just <laughs> doing some evidence-based research. So obviously your your channel is sort of uh, showing these things in general about space. They just go, you know, this is how we got here and this is why we understand that. Is it is it important that you get like a particular demographic? Is it like young people you're targeting? And how important is it for them to to see uh, people such as yourselves doing this sort of talking about this sort of stuff and saying, hey, this is what I do? Or is it like, you know, just everyone, is it these, let's say, flat earther type people who essentially need to be told some quality science? Yeah. So I don't specifically target anybody. I just kind of say my piece and I'm just like anybody who's interested can watch it I think Mm -hmm. um obviously the YouTube algorithm is another thing who the YouTube algorithm obviously recommends the video to who it it thinks will like it um so I don't really have much control over that but the way my videos are made is sort of the way we're chatting now it's like no prior assumed knowledge you know there's no barrier to entry and it's just someone who thinks space is really cool chatting about it And then also, you know, responding in the comments if you want to ask a follow-up question or a different question entirely, which I think is really fun for people, Um, you know, making it very open so that they feel like it is a conversation. Um, But I think it definitely is important to have people online openly talking about it 
also openly being human and making mistakes. So I always leave my bloopers in, for example, like, you know, asking Siri how far away Andromeda is because I can't remember or, you know, pronouncing so many different words wrong because I've never said them aloud before or, you know, just... uh, sneezing. I don't know what it is. I just feel like I'm completely a human being. But also I get a lot of messages from people with um, young kids that say they've been incredibly inspired to see someone uh, online, you know, just openly talking about science in that way and looking you know, for all intents and purposes, someone that they can sort of associate with, like, you know, everyone else they see online, whether it might be a beauty blogger or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, doing YouTube videos in the exact same way, but you just happen to be talking about science. Um, specifically, obviously people with young daughters, I think, uh, given that, but also, you know, people who are working in science now who are female who say, oh, I saw you in one of your bloopers be like, oh no, I just chipped a nail and be really annoyed about it because you want to paint your nails and have them look nice. And that's okay to do that and be a scientist. I think there's a, this weird, I don't know where it's come from, but there's this weird thing about like, you have to be a certain way to be a scientist, you know, the sort of atypical Einstein lookalike with a lab coat kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. very masculine in that sense, but it's not the case at all. You can still love nail polish and want to chat about (laughs) black holes in the next sentence, um, is my point. And I just think it's, you know, like it, it seems like a no brainer in a way, but it's still really important to just get that out there. Yeah. No, obviously there is, um, there's obviously an issue and, uh, the, the gender gap in, in STEM is, is quite a problem. Is your, do you think your videos are a really good way to get, to tell, you know, especially young, young girls that, you know, there are females who are doing science and, you know, we're doing some really cool stuff. Yeah. Just kind of being a bit unapologetic about it really. And then also like not bringing attention to it mm-hmm. in a way, just being like, yeah, I'm here. Cool. You know, in in that kind of a sense, like I started a series with my uh, friend in Oxford called Michaela Livingston Banks, who heads up sort of Oxford uh, STEM outreach. And we create this series called Nailing Science. And the premise of the series is we interview a scientist about their research. And as they talk to us, we recreate their research in scientifically accurate nail art on their fingernails. (laughs) And we don't explain why we're doing this. We don't like describe at the beginning that that's what we're going to do. We just do it. (laughs) And it's just like, because why not? Right. Mm -hmm. Just have a bit of fun with it because you can, you know, life's too short to think that you can't. (laughs) Sounds like a hidden talent that I didn't even know. Oh no, I don't have this hidden talent. I can (laughs) put nail polish on a nail. Michaela can like recreate intricate, like accurate drawings of birds so much that you recognize that oh that's a sparrow and that's a robin i can do stick figures (laughs) (laughs) and like basic drawings Hmm. sometimes i win or we get the person to vote for which one is their favorite because i do one hand and michaela does another hand sometimes i do win but most of the time michaela wins (laughs) um brilliant uh i shall definitely have to look at that one and see see what's there um one one thing that i definitely have looked at is your new book mm. um uh what you know obviously you are an astronomer by day a youtuber by the afternoon by I don't know night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, how come you wanted to go in an analog and write a book about space i guess it's just a different 
media, you know, we kind of have this assumption that, you know, everyone in the world is on social media and is talking to people online and is, and is using online. And you can get that sense from some of the YouTube figures, you know, so many billions of people log in every day and watch videos. But at the end of the day, there are some people that just really love a good book. And I'm Mm. one of them. I absolutely love reading. I was always reading as a kid. I still read now, you know, every night before I go to bed. And it's just such a a way to just sort of switch off and relax a little bit. And I never thought that I would write a book, if I'm quite honest. I think I was told at GCSEs that I wasn't a good writer because I write the way I talk. Mm -hmm. Now, that might not be a good way to write an English essay. (laughs) However, for a popular science book, you know, it's actually apparently quite a good thing. Um, so I just had a lot of fun with it really. Um, I didn't really set any expectations on myself and I just let myself just chat the way I would when I was writing, when I, you know, be sort of planning a YouTube video. And so what I've ended up with is this really nice sort of short digestible 10 essay kind of collection book about mm-hmm. the sort of 10 things that you should know in space, like the 10 biggest ideas yeah. uh, in space. You know, the kind of thing that you'd want to crack out at a dinner party, you know, yeah. to be like, oh yeah, I know about dark matter. Yeah, did you know this? <laughs> kind of, that kind of a thing. And I've written it, you know, with um, sort of my mom in mind who, you know, did her GCSEs and then never did any science past that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for people who either absolutely love space and you know, want to read everything they can get their hands on or people who've gone, you know what? Space has always interested me, but I've always thought it was too hard. You know, well, I always thought English was too hard, (laughs) but I managed to write a book. So it's all about (laughs) practice, you know, like, and it's supposed to be sort of entry level for people who, you know, just really want to get to grips with what they can about space and just really learn some exciting stuff. And I think a book is a really great way to do that because it gives people to digest it in their own time, you know, at their own pace as well and go back to things. And I think that's what's really nice about a book. Yeah. No, there's definitely, um, it is, you know, the way how the, 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 the chapters are essentially I've you know having read it I've the, I understand so much more of these things that I've been you know working on and covering for the last few years as well so it's, <laughs> it's really helped me in that that respect but obviously you know you've got 10 things that you should know about it how did you pick those 10 things and were there some stuff that's actually really cool but just didn't make the cut yeah um it was a bit difficult to sort of narrow it down a little bit Mm-hmm. Obviously, I managed to sneak two chapters in there about black holes because <laughs> <laughs> I love black holes. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just the ones that just leapt out to me a little bit. You know, the ones we're either always talking about because they're at the forefront of research right now or, you know, we still don't know something, for example. Um, there was a couple of things that maybe didn't make the cut. Uh, but I think the ones that got in there are, are the ones that, at least in my experience of just you know, being at parties or stuck on trains or planes and people turning to you and asking what you do. Um, they're the questions you always get back afterwards, you know, like what was before the big bang? Uh, how will the universe end? Um, do aliens exist? And that kind of thing. Yeah. And looking at it and saying, this is where we're at and this is how we best understand it now, but also stressing like that can change. And that's okay. And there's a lot of stuff we still don't know because as a kid, I read a lot of space books because I'm not afraid to say it, but I was a space nerd through and through. And 
I read these books and devoured them and thought that everything was already known. You know, everything was presented as, like I said, like we've always known it and that's the way it will always be understood. And I really wanted to stress with this book that it's not the case at all, (laughs) that there's so much that we don't know. In fact, the last chapter is called, there's more that we don't know than we do know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really nice way to end it. That was Dr. Becky Smethurst, whose book, Space, 10 Things You Should Know, is out now. You can find an extract of it on sciencefocus.com and we'll add a link in the show notes. Otherwise, if you like listening to our little chats, then please let us know with a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell your friends if you think they'll like it too. Next week, Marcel Danacy explains the language of lying, which will be great and that's the truth, but for more mind-expanding science, the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is on sale now. In it, you'll find why ageing has an off switch, why robots won't think like us, and how dark matter is hiding under our feet. As always, there's loads more inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.